Welcome to episode number 55 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Soybeans are the largest United States agricultural export. The United States is second to only Brazil on the world stage as being the highest producer of soybeans. In 2022, the United States exported 57 million tons of soybeans valued at $34.37 billion throughout the world. These amazing numbers are just a small piece of what we cover today with Charles Hall, executive producer of the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association. In this episode of the National Land Realty Podcast, we introduced listeners to this amazing commodity, how it's used, where it grows, and how organizations like the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association advocate for agricultural producers on a daily basis. Now sit back and enjoy. Um, I'm sitting here with Charles Hall. Charles, uh, you were the executive director of the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association. Um, so give me a brief little intro. Like, how did you get into this particular position? And, and you know, what do you what do you all work with? Yeah, great. Um, it's, it's great to be here, Mac. I appreciate you all having me on board. Um, I got into soybeans because I was a uh, an international marketing specialist in agriculture. And uh, I marketed a lot of products. Some were branded products, food and beverage, snack foods, things like that. But uh, I got really familiar with a lot of farmers. And then through my farmer contact, I got into the uh, the association world, uh, which which is a, actually a pretty big universe of national and state commodity groups. So, so pretty much every set of growers in America has their association uh, and some are, are quite significant. So uh, we are the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association. We're also the state affiliate of the American Soybean Association, which is our national grassroots organization. Uh, then also soybean farmers have a, uh, a an assessment on their product. So it, it's a voluntary assessment that they use for marketing purposes. And, and we're also the board in North Carolina that administers that assessment. Uh, so that goes into marketing and promotion and research. Gotcha. And and so this just just happened organically. You mentioned that you were working with food before. Was it aligned with agriculture or it sounded like it was almost kind of with, with retail? So I just I was curious. Yeah, I, I worked in government and, and we did, you know, we did promote and market a lot of uh, consumer ready products. Certainly uh, they're all agricultural products. So they're, they're all made from agricultural ingredients. But some of them were, you know, things that you're very familiar with. So uh I'm just thinking something like Slim Jim. You know, if you remember Slim Jim's, the meat snack, uh, obviously it, it's made from from beef. So it's an agricultural product, but it was a branded labeled product that we actually promoted stuff like that overseas. So all around the world. But we also worked with commodities, uh, apple, poultry, meat, you know, pork, meat, things like that, that are um, not not consumer ready, you know, not not necessarily a branded product. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, you know, working with soybeans now, uh, you know, it's, it's always good to, to discuss anything agricultural kind of in, in this, in this podcast. I, I love, I love the topic. Um, 
What are some interesting things that that we should know about soybeans in the U.S.? It's not it it, it gets attributed to, to U.S. agriculture, but it's not discussed as widely as like you know everyone hears about corn and wheat and you know things like that. And you hear a lot of those. How much is North Carolina producing in terms of soybean crops, and and how does that relate nationally? Yeah, so soybeans is, is a bit of a conundrum. When I talk to my growers on my board of directors, if if you ask them what's your favorite crop, they're going to say something else. You know, they're they're going to say my favorite crop's corn, or my favorite crop's cotton, or it's tobacco. So soybeans never is mentioned as everybody's favorite crop, but I guess the paradox is it's it's the number one U.S. agricultural export. Uh, in North Carolina, it's the biggest acreage crop. It's, it's got the biggest footprint. Um, and it's a, a great source of nutrition for livestock. So when you're consuming poultry or you're consuming pork, you're, you're really consuming soy protein because those animals are fed on soybean meal. So um, real quick about what soybeans actually are. Soybean is an oil seed. So it's not like corn. You know, when you grow corn on your farm, you take corn to the feed mill and the feed mill can process it right there into animal feed. Soy's a little different. Soy's composed of oil. It's just about 20% vegetable oil, soybean oil. And, and the other you know, 80% more or less when it's processed goes into soybean meal, which is, which is the ideal terrestrial protein for, for a lot of things. I mean, it's the preferred terrestrial protein for feeding to animals. So our biggest customers actually are, are chickens followed by pigs. And, and that holds true in the U.S., uh, in North Carolina, and, and around the world. Our, our customers are animals, let's say. So, um I guess my point being that with, with the soybean, it has to be processed first to, to get that compositional value out of the crop. So it's processed and then the uh, oil, the veg oil goes into one channel and, uh, you know, the dry component, the meal component goes into another channel. Uh, so the meal, that's what's rich in protein. But when it comes out of the processing plant, it's, you know, our, our meal here in North Carolina is around 48% protein. Gotcha. Okay. Really ideal for feeding a pig or a chicken. So when I'm saying that too, like in talking about it, you, you know, you, you, you've heard more about soybeans in the last, let's say 20 years. Has it, is it the case that the, the, the crop has grown or just it's been discussed more? Cause it. Yeah. In, in recent years. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's a big acreage crop in about 30 states in the U.S. So, the, you know, the biggest growing areas are the I states. Uh, Illinois, Iowa. Yeah, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, and then, um, you know, Michigan, um, Minnesota, the, the Dakotas, believe it or not. So, and in recent years, with improvements in genetics, you know, improvements in the seed technology, we're seeing more and more soy being grown further north than it ever was. So creeping into the Dakotas and probably in 10 or 20 years, it'll be going into Southern Canada. That, that's all because of seed technology improvement. And, and that's really accelerated. But I mean, historically, uh, I'd say soy in America is a 20th century crop. Uh, it, it, it really started to boom. I don't know, sometime after the second world war in terms of, the, the footprint and the infrastructure we see today. 
say the, the big corn soybean rotations out in the Midwest, the, the supply chain that goes down the Mississippi River to the port of New Orleans or goes by rail uh, to ports on the upper West Coast. Gotcha, gotcha. As as a as a group that's an advocacy group, um, you know, you have a lot to do with, you know, you work with lobbying, you work with probably local agricultural producers and stuff. Talk to me about sort of like the, the primary goals of your organization and sort of how how you all function. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we've really got two functions. One is we, we, we take this uh, sort of a self-assessment, this voluntary assessment that farmers charge themselves. So I, I, I'll tell your, your listeners what the rate is. It's, it's one half of one percent. So when a farmer sells his beans, whatever that first point of sale is, there's a withholding of one half of one percent. Uh, and that money, uh, according to federal law, it's, it goes into research, which which we do. Uh, we fund research at land grant universities and with private agronomists, uh, all to improve yield and quality. So one of our major goals is improve the crop statewide in North Carolina. Uh, another part of that money that farmers voluntarily assess themselves goes into market development. So attain market access for our member growers. Uh, when you get around to the policy side, yeah, we, we definitely work in policy. Uh, unfortunately, we, we're not able to use that grower self-assessment funding for policy. There, there's a prohibition on using that money for lobbying, but we, we've got other sources. We do fundraising. So ensuring a favorable policy environment, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or the state capitol. Uh, then we've got a, a pretty big, you know, public facing operation here. So cultivating a positive public image for farmers really become important. We, we, we kind of call that the license to operate. You know, farmers need to maintain that social license to operate. So when a member of the public sees the product or sees the practices, whatever they are, they say, okay, you know, I understand that, or at least it doesn't raise alarm bells. And finally, just, you know, we have a, a goal to perform like a world-class organization. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about, you mentioned that, that soybeans take up, you know, when someone that it takes up a lot of land, right? Like it's, it's a crop that requires a lot of land. Um, tell me a little bit about what's different about it from other, you know, other commodities. If someone were exploring the option, what they would want to look for. You mentioned being in the Midwest. What's the, what's the ratio of water that required for the crop as opposed to other crops and, and things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about sort of yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what's the exploratory on that. Yeah, so it, it's a very versatile crop. It's a very resilient crop. Uh, and North Carolina is a great example to, to demonstrate that because we have so many different environments and soil types just in the state of North Carolina. So if, if you're not familiar with us, we're, we're basically from the mountains to the sea, right? We, we've got everything. We've got higher elevations. We've got zero elevation. Uh, and, and farmers here grow soil on really good soil and kind of good soil and, and some pretty poor soil and it performs. So thanks to the improvements in seed genetics over the years, you, you can find a soybean variety that's going to grow pretty well wherever you are. So if, if you're a landowner and, and you're farming or you're leasing land to farmers, chances are that there, there's going to be a soybean that, that is um, well adapted to that local environment. 
meaning that the farmer is going to be able to plant it and be profitable. Now, I mean, there, there's some parts of America, they just don't grow a lot of soy. And, and you know, the desert Southwest is going to be one of those places. But if, if you're looking at the East Coast, uh, the Corn Belt, the upper Midwest, up through the Dakotas, yeah, I mean, there, there's soybeans that are genetically adapted and proven to, to really do well up there. So if, if, someone, if someone was looking to rotate out of a current crop, and into soybeans, what are sort of the steps that they would want to take? I mean, I think your, your first step is, is to get a, a good agronomist, uh, a certified crop advisor or an agronomist. Uh, they're, they're, all, they're all over the U.S. wherever, wherever farming occurs. Um, they, they may be independent people or individuals working in their own businesses. Uh, or if you're if you have a seed dealer or you have a crop input dealer, you know, somebody that's providing your, your crop nutrients and your crop protection products like your pesticides and your herbicides. Uh, th- those people have agronomists on staff that, that are there to advise you. That's, that's their whole purpose is, is to advise you about how to get the most out of your crop. So that, that's a, a big way that, that farmers get the latest advice on the technology and, and the products. And it's gotten really, really high tech in just the last few years. I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a change to uh, much more automation, um, use of big data, uh, use of, of digital mapping so that we're, we're putting things just where we need them, like uh, a pesticide product or a nutrient product. We're able now to go in and, and pretty much put it right on target. And, and if we don't need it over there, we're not going to put it over there. So it's become so efficient. Uh, it, it really pays you know, for farmers to have a, a good source of advice. Oh, absolutely. Um, and setting up a, a like so setting up contact with processing, um, you know, your your sort of supply chain for it is yeah. most states, you know, likely have, you know, soybean processing or, or access to um, what's what's a way that, you know, if, if someone is exploring again, like rotating out of a crop and into this, how would they set up their distribution network to, to get that product to market? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the, the the soy supply chain basically goes something like crop is produced on the farm, and then it it, it generally is going to go to um, either a local elevator or if you're near a, you know a big transit artery like the Mississippi River or the Ohio River or something, maybe it's going to go to a a big elevator on that river where it's going to be loaded into a barge. But but you know at some point it's going to get on a truck, it's going to go to an elevator. From that elevator, it's going to go on another truck or on a barge to, to somewhere else, maybe a processing plant, or maybe it's going to go down to New Orleans or, or Long Beach and get on a ship and, and go to an overseas customer. Uh, to, to summarize all that, the, the farmer is a price taker. So it's a, it's a commodity crop. It's a big volume, low margin crop. The farmer is going to get paid on whatever the market says that day. So if if the futures market says the price is this. The farmer is probably going to get that plus a little more depending on where he or she is, or maybe minus a little more depending on where he or she is, just based on how much that local market's calling for soybean. So really, um, you know, the farmer's just got to have a way to transport it, you know, harvest it with a combine harvester, load it into some conveyance and, and get it to that first point of sale. Um you know, you, you can engage a trucker to do that. You don't have to do it yourself. Uh, so soybean farming actually can be quite simple. It's, it's not very labor intensive. Really, um, 
you know, you can even hire out your planting. You can hire out your harvesting. It's, it's something a landowner could conceivably do without a lot of employees and without a lot of equipment. I got you. Okay. What's the uh, what's the biggest concerns with with soybeans as a crop when it comes down to say for a landowner, uh, you know, engaging in, in or, or taking on soybeans as a crop? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're thinking of, of going into soy, I mean, one thing obviously to think about is just, yeah, it's a big volume, low margin commodity right now due to global events, due to, you know, the post-COVID situation, the war in Ukraine, whatever else. Uh, the cost of in, inputs has, has been pretty inflated the last few years. So if you're, you're thinking about, you know, your nutrients, so the soil nutrients to make the plant grow, that's, that's something you buy. And, and put in your crop. If you're thinking about the pesticides to protect it from insects or funguses or, or weeds, you know, all of those things rob yield from the soybean and you got to control those and, and suppress them. Cost money. So all of that's been inflated in recent years. That's one thing to think about. Uh, I think another thing to think about though is, is the fact that it is, it is a versatile crop. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be irrigated, for example. It grows very well on dry land. Uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of management like some other crops. I, I think corn is probably requiring more management. Cotton requires more management. Uh, soybeans, you know, you, you can get a, a pretty decent return on soy. With, with minimal management, if, if you're efficient at it, and obviously if you want to invest more management, you, you can really do very well with soy. Yeah, can I, I had corn in my mind as far as like asking, you know, about other crops, just knowing that it takes a little bit more, you know, a little bit more heavy touch, a little bit more like tons of water, right? Like corn's a high, yeah. high volume water crop. And so it, and you said that soybeans don't require as much. They, they tend to function fairly well in a, in a, I'm not going to say a dry environment, but a more dry environment um, than, than crops, say, for example, corn. Um, so what's, what are sort of like, are there certain, are there certain blights that you have to keep your eye on with soy as opposed to other crops are the things that like specifically target soy that you need? Oh to yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Like a, a farmer's going to tell you, it's, it's always either it, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too wet, it's too dry. Right. So, um, funguses and things like that, when, when you do get like into a colder, wetter environment or, or you have a series of days or weeks where it's maybe below average temperatures and a little more rain than normal. Yeah, yeah there, there, there's certain funguses that do attack soy and, and there's fungicides that you can apply uh, usually with really good results. So fungicides have, have been proven to, uh, to help boost yield and increase yield in those situations. Insects, uh, we, we've got insect pests just like every other crop does. Uh, the white-tailed deer, if, if you live in a state where there's a lot of white-tailed deer, they, they love to get out in your soybeans and eat them. Um, you know, weather-related risk, there is always weather risk, so drought. Soy, soy tends to do okay. Uh, you, you can purchase a seed variety that is better adapted for drought. You know, it's been proven over a period of time and research to do better in drought than other varieties. Uh, soybean also has a tendency to kind of lock down when the weather gets really, really hot. It, it stops growing, but it doesn't die, right? So it'll take some, some moisture and lower heat to turn the plant back on, but it's not going to be dead. It's going to survive it. 
So historically, soy comes out of China, right? Um, yeah, um, the, the wild soybean still grows wild in Asia. And um, we'd actually funded a, a university research project for a few years where they were going to Asia and getting this wild soybean, which is, is really difficult to recognize when you compare it to the plant we grow on the farms. And, and they were actually breeding it back in to see if they could come up with these you know, new genetic permutations that might have some benefit to farmers. I was talking about how it like, became really popular. The conversation of soy comes up in the last 20 years, but um, the U.S. has been the top exporter of soy since the 1950s, um, which sort of puts it fairly prevalent on the world stage. You know, as 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 a crop, what would be appealing to soy for potent, for, for landowners as a potential crop? as opposed to other crops, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned that it's versatile. You mentioned that it can, it can tolerate, you know, more extremes than, than other crops or maybe less inputs. And you also mentioned that the price of input, do you, does, does soy require more input than say other crops or does it require less? Cause it's been a thing over the, like you, like you just said, fertilizer over the last couple of years has just gone through the roof and, and other, you know, pesticides, things like that. So, you know, what would be, what would be the appeal of of that as a crop? Well, so soy is a it's a legume. It's, it's a nitrogen fixing plant. Uh, another example of legume is you know peanuts. Peanuts is a legume. So one thing you cannot do is grow cotton or excuse me, grow soybeans followed by peanuts because they 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 tend to have the same diseases. So that's you know that would be a no no. Uh, but a lot of people in the Midwest rotate their soybean with their corn. So, you know, uh, uh, soy one year followed by corn the next year is a, a pretty common practice in the Midwest. Here, here in the Southeast, we do a lot of um, soy planted in May or June or even July and harvested in September, October. And we'll come right back in with a winter wheat crop, literally planted the same day the soy's harvested. And so you'll get a winter wheat crop over the winter, harvest that, maybe in June and, and go right back with soy behind it. So that, that, that's a benefit to it. Um, that wasn't your question. Tell me, tell me your question again. You were asking. I would say like, what's, what would be the appeal? Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so because soybean is a legume, it's, it's got the, these bacteria that live around the roots and, and these bacteria actually take nitrogen from, from the atmosphere and they, they fix that nitrogen in the soil where the soybean plant can utilize it as a nutrient. So um, it, it's called nitrogen fixation. It's just a benefit of growing soy. You just don't need as much nitrogen applied to the crop. Uh, you know, synthetic nitrogen, uh, you, don't, you don't need as much of that. Uh, unlike corn, where you need quite a bit, soy actually can uh, fix its own nitrogen uh, from the atmosphere with the help of these bacteria. Uh, so that, that's one benefit to it. Um, it generally takes less nutrients. You, you'll still need some crop protection products. You'll probably need some weed control products. Uh, but thanks to genetic technologies now, we, we've got several great chemistries that you can spray right over the top of the soybean. Won't kill the soybean plant, but it'll kill the weed. Uh, that's, that's been the major genetic technology that's been introduced for soy over the years is, is resistance to herbicides. So herbicides kill the weeds, but they don't kill the soybean plant. 
same time, uh, we've also developed some weeds that are resistant to those herbicides, and that, that has become a bit of a problem. You know, how, how do you deal with the weeds once they are also uh, resistant to the herbicide? Then you got to either get another chemistry or you got to do something mechanical. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the arms race, right? With uh, between biology. Yeah, it's a bit. Uh, it's an arms race of sorts. But you know the benefit of those genetic technologies, which are in the seed, right? They they come in the seed. So the farmer gets that bag of seed. That technology is in the seed bag. Um, we don't really plow the land anymore. I mean, we we plant the seed directly into the ground without plowing it. Uh, and I know farmers that haven't plowed a field and. 20 or 30 years, they, they literally drill that seed right into the ground. They don't disturb the ground. They don't turn the ground over. Uh, that's great for all sorts of things. Uh, it's just great yeah. for the biologics in the dirt. It's great for, um, you know, carbon neutrality, all kinds of good reasons for that. And that, that's because of that herbicide-resistant seed technology. Yeah, I was going to say, because soy has come up in, in regenerative agriculture, right? And and you, you were just talking about, you know, no-till, right? Where where the the act of tilling depletes the soil of certain things. Yeah. And and when you take a product like soy that, that produces, you know, brings nitrogen into the soil, it sort of, it lends credence to the whole regenerative agriculture movement and, and how people are using it. Um, you mentioned rotating it in with corn. How does it fit in with other other crops in the rotation? Is it is, is there you said, you know, you don't want to pair it with peanuts. Are there other ones that it's friendlier to? Is there other ones you want to steer clear from in a rotation or or, you know, what's some of the, the, dy the dynamics of that? I mean, any legume, you don't want to like pair two legumes in a rotation. So you, you wouldn't do soy and peanuts, but uh, standard practice in, in the Midwest or, or corn soybean rotations. Uh, that, that's just common. I mean, that's that's how it's done there. Uh, on the East Coast and the Carolinas, we, we have so many other crops, so many specialty crops. So we have tobacco, we have cucumbers, we have peppers, watermelons, you know, everything you can think of. And, and soy works really well with, with just about all of that, um, especially, you know, if you have fields where you're, you don't have irrigation in place, um, Maybe your soils, uh, uh, sandier soil doesn't hold water as well as a droughtier soil. A lot of times you'll find tobacco on that land and tobacco land can be rotated into soybeans. Tell me a little bit how your organization advocates for the soybean you know, producers of, you know, of your area in particular, because I know that you have like a national network of, you know, other groups. You know, tell me about just your state and how your team functions and sort of, you know, how you represent the the producers in your area. Yeah, I think for producers and, and their landlords or, you know, if the producer is the landlord, you know, the landowner, uh, it's really important to pay attention to federal farm legislation. So there's this piece of legislation called the Farm Bill, and it's once every five years. And, and the Farm Bill is the legislative vehicle in Washington where what we call the uh, the, the farm safety net uh, programs are, are, are voted on and funded. And for farmers and, and landlords, you know, they're, they're landlords or, or again, if they are the, the landowner, those programs, uh, for example, crop insurance, 
and the revenue protection programs, that, that really does provide that safety net. So if, if these markets get, get really uh, volatile, so prices are going up steeply or falling steeply, it, it provides that safety net, which is going to mean there's going to be some income even in the bad years. That's that's really vital to farmers. A, a lot of farms out of five years, they'll make money one year, they'll lose money one year, maybe they'll break even the other two or three years. So we go up there and we lobby for that legislation. Uh, we, we advocate on behalf of farmers for that. We, we, we need crop insurance. We, we need the farm safety net programs that are in the farm bill. And whether we're, we're going out to uh, farm bill hearings that happen locally, you know, and if, if listeners in your network are, are landowners and, and they see that their congressman or their senators having a, a farm bill listening session, which are going on right now, because 2023 is the year that the current farm bill expires, I'd encourage them to go, go sit and listen or bring their concerns. I mean, Congress wants to hear from rural Americans about what's going on, you, you know, in the countryside. Uh, we, we certainly do that. We, we go up to Capitol Hill, walk the halls, visit the offices. Uh, and we work with our uh, national affiliate, the American Soybean Association, which has a, a team of lobbyists in Washington. Got you. And so, you know, with that with that bill coming due, you were talking about income protection. And is, is that related to fluctuation in futures indexes or is that related more toward? I mean, does that also incorporate, say, natural disasters, a freeze? You know, something like that. Does it does it also protect against those things? And is that all wrapped up into the bill? Absolutely. Uh, there, there's different products to protect against different things. There, there's products uh, that, that can protect against, um, you know, if, if the prices for whatever you're growing in your area get really low, you know, if they tank. Uh, if, if you're enrolled in the program, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll get protection. Or if you've had a couple really, really good years revenue-wise on your operation, you know, the whole operation, and then you get some year where your revenue is just, you know, it's just down the tubes. There's a program that will protect against that risk. Uh, with crop insurance, you've got protection against weather risk. You know, if you have a hailstorm, if you have a hurricane. Um, yeah, so there, there's a lot of different products that are out there. And depending on how the farmer wants to, you know, put different pieces of that protection together, uh, all of these options are funded ultimately through the Farm Bill. It expires this year. Does that coincide with the voting of the next? Farm bill that the outlays the next five years. Yeah, so Congress right now is taking up this this new farm bill, and and they're starting to to do the budget scoring, and then look at the different programs, and uh, hopefully they'll get one by the end of the year. So probably what's going to happen is this current farm bill will expire at the end of the federal fiscal year, and Congress will create a new one and hopefully pass it before January first. That's that's kind of the optimistic outlook. What sort of the, what, what things are you looking at in terms of the new the new farm bill that's coming out that people should be aware of new things that are being discussed to be introduced and or things that are in there that should be amended? Yeah, so the, the farm bill itself actually is um, a little bit about farming. It's, it's a lot about human nutrition. So it's, it's the legislation where all of the food assistance and hunger assistance programs reside. And that's actually the bulk of the, the money in the farm bill. The, the, the bit of money in there that actually goes to supporting farmers is, is 
honestly, of a pretty small percentage of the bill. That's why we focus on it so hard, because the, the costs for all the non-farming things have increased over the years. And it's sort of a zero-sum game. That, that stuff has gotten so expensive, it's, it's hard to find more money to do uh, the farm safety net programs. So we're, we're really attuned to that because, again, you know, if you're a landowner and you're leasing to a farmer or you're farming your own land, depending on how your leases are structured, for example, you, you may share in the risk to that farmer. So, I mean, you, you may have structured your lease so that you're entitled to a portion of the crop or a portion of the earnings from the crop, however you've done that. But these programs, you know, provide that farmer the the risk management to you know get that crop in get it out uh and to keep on farming the next year so what what's the what's the relationship look like between say your group and your local congressman or you know are you with you mentioned you work with your national affiliates who who lobby nationally but so you're working mostly with like the north carolina legislature um are are you in there you know talking with them on the daily is this you know what what does that sort of dynamic look like when when you're trying to influence sort of how people are legislating towards your your crop i'd say with with the federal side we, we are monitoring it daily just because again so, so many of these programs are federal programs so the, the federal government's kind of taking the responsibility for this farm safety net at, at the local level or the state level uh i'd, I'd say it's more on environmental regulation and you know, North Carolina has done a, a really good job of um, looking out for the farmer and, and the rural landowner legislatively, but there, there's still things that, that have to be dealt with. Uh, EPA regulations that, that are, uh, you know, implemented by the state regulatory authority. So we, we, we deal with that a good bit. Um, it, it could be air quality, water quality. Uh, like I said, our biggest customers are, are chickens and pigs. So, we, we have a huge animal industry in North Carolina. We've got probably a billion birds, you know, poultry, turkeys, broiler chickens, layer chickens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw yesterday we've got around 8 million swine down from about 10 million. So more or less one, one pig for every citizen in North Carolina out there somewhere. And um, <laughs> that, that's our customer, right? And, and we want to maintain that customer. We don't want that customer to go away. Because this, this creates a market for for our soybeans right here at home. So when, when there's regulatory challenges to those industries, we're we're very very sensitive to that. Yeah. So is are there are there are there is there anything current that sort of is influencing those things as far as legislation, negative or positive, against say poultry or swine? Yeah, I mean they're all regulated industries. Whenever animals are concentrated on a farm, and and there's you know, there's inputs going in, there's outputs going out. Uh, there, there's regulations to, to maintain the cleanliness, the health, the safety, the environmental safety and quality, all, all of that. And that's, that's kind of standard procedure. But we also get outside groups that, that target our state and target these industries in our state. And, and it may be people that, um, you know, they, they, they've got ample resources and, and they have a particular social or political agenda and, and and maybe chicken production or hog production is not part of their agenda. So we we have seen a lot of that money flow into North Carolina to to negatively influence those industries. And because they are our customers, we 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 stand with them, you know. 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, and that's another part, right, where you, you just don't think about that on, on the ready, where, you know, that legislation or regulation or, you know, something that's of hindrance to creating, you know, you know a poultry farm or, or you know, uh, you know, working with swine or something like that 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 would affect say soybean producers that that there's you know this this uh when i say just a relationship between those two that are that are that strong that you wouldn't think about um you know is 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 it the a matter of getting everybody on the same page do you work with those kind of groups do you work with say the, the poultry association or you know is that I, I'm guessing you guys are in ready contact, I guess, is the thing. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, on so many levels. I mean, not not to mention the technical level. So, you know, providing the evidence of, of our nutritional bundle to their animal nutritionists, yeah, that's, that's yeah. got nothing to do with politics, right? We, we do that all the time. It's just standard procedure again. But yeah, politically, um, th those industries are are targeted. They're, they're targeted frequently and, and with big money that's often coming from out of state. They're targeted in the media and increasingly in the courts. So a lot of times it's not a legislative solution. It's, it's a judicial solution. And there, there's cost to that. You know, there's cost to the media campaigns and the lawyers and, and everything that happens there. So I think, again, if you're a landowner, ultimately it comes down to um, what what's your right or freedom to you know, do with your land as you will uh, without having uh, a court or a legislature, somebody telling you, well, you, you can't do this or you can't do that uh, because somebody, you know, from somewhere else has told us we shouldn't do it. Uh, never mind the facts, never mind the scientific evidence, you know, but we, we, we've kind of succumbed to this pressure. So I, I think it's a real possibility. And, and North Carolina has done a great job of protecting those industries to the extent that they, they do have freedom to operate. Our, our poultry industry is is actually growing. Our swine industry is in a, a sort of a steady state. It's not getting any bigger, not getting any smaller. But yeah, for us and for all our, you know, all the feed grains, whether it's corn, wheat for feed, soybeans, th those animal industries, that's our customers. Who's the, who are like your champions within within sort of legislature that that um, the work with you readily that that you sort of go to. Are there are there certain yeah. or I don't know if you can speak to that. Like, are there are there certain people that are like that's my guy or that's my guy? Yeah, there, there, like, there, there definitely are. And, I, I, you know, without without naming names, I, I don't know if your your listeners would even know some of the people in <laughs> North Carolina. But but there, there definitely are. There there are people, for example, in our North Carolina legislative delegation that, that represent the rural parts of the state, represent a lot of landowners, a lot of farm owners. Maybe they serve on the uh, House Agricultural Committee or, or had once served on the House Ag Committee. Th those guys have been our friends and, and we've been supportive of them. Um, you know, we, we have supporters in other states that, that broadly support our American soybean industry. So certainly there are senators, congressmen and congresswomen that, that are our friends and that, that we appreciate their support. Definitely in our state legislature uh, you know, our state judiciary, even um, there, there, there's people that, that seem to understand and get it that, you know, these are at the end of the day, uh, it, it's the rural economy, it's rural economic development, it's rural jobs. Our, our farmers aren't, you know, they're not old McDonald anymore. It's not it's not a guy in a straw hat with a red barn and an old tractor. I mean, these these guys are looking for 
business opportunities every day and they're adapting their farms to the latest opportunities and the latest technology. And I think yeah, the, the, the technology that's been adapted in farming in the last, in just the last 20 years has been just through the roof as far as like they're, they're, you know, geo-coordinating oh, their, yeah. their yeah. water and like, you know, mixing it with solar and putting it onto a, you know, predetermined program system. And then, you know, running, running, you know, combines by GPS and, you know, they're yeah. running themselves and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. All of that. And I think the way we've adapted just to the changing political climate too. I mean, uh, the, the burden of regulation has increased, not decreased, but, but, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, the, the, the media scrutiny on where food comes from and what agriculture does and what farming is, uh, has, has changed. So, most farms are family farms, which means that it's a, it's a man or a woman who probably grew up farming uh, with the father. Let's just let's be frank about that. It's usually that they grew up and their dad was a farmer and they learned it from their dad. But but their experience today is nothing like what their their dad's experience was. I mean, the, the, the dad, if he was farming in the 60s or 70s or even 80s, it, it's just so different today. So, I mean, I think you've got to be very adaptable but you really need to have some trust in your your associations. You know, the, the volunteer farmers that serve on the boards of directors like my board of directors that are volunteering their time to, to do these things legislatively or politically. That, that's really, really become vital to our freedom to operate. So what's the best part about your job there? Yeah, you know, I used to say the travel back when I was an agricultural marketing specialist, <laughs> it was just flying around the world and, uh, you know, visiting all these customers in places like, I don't know, like Vietnam and China and Romania. And so that, that was great. I mean, I, I love seeing our American products getting utilized in some other part of the world. It was just wonderful. Um, North Carolina sweet potatoes, you know, going over to London and seeing North Carolina sweet potatoes in the supermarkets are going to the Middle East and, and, you know, seeing our soybeans feeding pigs and chickens and in the Middle East, it's just, it's wonderful to see that happen. What's the most challenging part of what you do? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you just got to understand that with, with farming and working with farmers, they're working every day for the most part. And, and when you're working with volunteer farmers, you have to understand that when, when they're doing something for you, it means they're not getting to do something else they need to be doing, whether it's work or spending time with their families. So it, it's kind of a challenge just to be cognizant of that. It's, their job is not a nine to five job, right? Especially in the Carolinas where they, they do so many different things. Uh, that, that's a bit of a challenge. Um yeah, you know, really everything else is honestly pretty rewarding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's too challenging. I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's hard work, but it's, it's very enjoyable. So outlook for soybeans, you know, futures, what is the outlook for soybeans? Um, you know, and, and this is, we're also talking commodities. It's like the single most volatile pricing index there is, right? It's, it's just commodities in general, but, and you can't predict it based on weather and trade and, Ukrainian wars and, you yeah. know, so, so tell me about, you know, what, what sort of the, it, cause I don't want to make you project it in the long term cause you can't, but you know, in the short term, what's sort of the future is looking like for soybeans? Well, so we haven't talked yet about renewable energy, but for soybeans, you know, a lot of what the future is going to look like 
price-wise and acreage-wise, I, I think it's renewable energy. So soy is a, a feedstock, soy oil, right? The, the oil component is a feedstock for renewable diesel. And, and renewable diesel, um, it, it can be produced in a refinery, just, just like fuel made from petroleum products. Uh, it basically is the same chemical process. They're taking that, that oil and they're um, you, you know, rearranging the molecules to make gasoline or diesel or whatever they make. So all vegetable oils can, can be treated that way and turned into fuel. And, and certainly soy oil is a prime candidate for that. What we're seeing is some of the big refiners partnering with the soy processors and announcing uh, new soybean processing plants or expanding existing plants for the sole purpose of providing a feedstock for renewable diesel fuel. Uh, and there's another one coming that is called sustainable aviation fuel or SAF for short. And if, if projections hold true, there's going to be a lot of demand for those products in the next 30 years. So there's going to be a huge call on the markets for vegetable oil. Because it, it, it's a great, it's a great feedstock to produce these renewable fuels. So th that being the case, um, you know, we're, we're looking at an expansion in soy processing. That'll probably mean an expansion in soy acreage. And on the flip side, uh, you know, the price of protein ought to decrease, right? Because we've got all that soy meal. It's got to go somewhere. It ought to get cheaper for the people feeding pigs and chickens, frankly. Um, that soy protein will be in abundance. Should be getting cheaper. So it's yeah. And so some of the inputs for, say, things like swine or poultry could be coming down as the popularity grows for. And when you say renewable, is that is that sort of marketing spin for biofuels? How it used to be called biofuels? Is yeah, um, we, we called it different things. We, we like renewable diesel. Uh, there, there's something called soy biodiesel, which is it's not a refined product. This is made in just a simple chemical reaction. Uh -huh. But there, there's also renewable diesel made from soy oil, which is actually produced in a refinery. Right. So gotcha. Okay. I was curious like, if it was the same thing or if it was a variance of yeah. it's, it's the same. So soy soy diesel, soy biodiesel is, is soy biodiesel. But diesel made renewable diesel made from soy is no different from any other diesel, right? It's the same. Or or gasoline. They they can literally rearrange the molecules, make make whatever. It's the same. It's indistinguishable. That's fascinating. And and knowing that, you know, the future of that is coming up or, it, it, well, I mean, when I say it's coming up, it's probably in discussions right now and probably moving forward to make, you know, those kind of fuels more affordable. Um, what sort of challenges do you see ahead for for yourself and your organization in representing, you know, the the growers of the country and even at the national level, you know, as, as we look forward to legislation co coming up, are there any particular headwinds that you were paying attention like to specifically, or is it just remaining advocacy as you're moving forward? Yeah, I mean, advocacy is certainly a big one. Marketing, um, again, you know, we're the biggest U.S. ag export. So you're looking at probably one out of every three rows of soybean planted on American farms or, or being exported somewhere. Well, China used to be by far our biggest export customer. I mean, dwarfing everybody else out there. Uh, and then we got involved with, with a, a trade war, let's say. We, we had a trade war with China and we lost a good share of that market. It's, it's come back. But, you know, we, we need to look at diversifying our international markets. We, we can't put all our eggs in one basket and, and we need 
again, through the farm bill, we, we need the assistance with the, uh, the, the marketing programs that are funded in that bill that allow U.S. agriculture to go out in the world and compete against, uh, you know, the rest of the world who are also out there going for those same markets, right? So we're we're, we're attentive to that. And, and you know, places like, uh, again, um, you know, the Middle East, Egypt, Egypt's a good customer for U.S. soy. The whole of Southeast Asia is a great customer. Everywhere where people's diets are developing and they're consuming more animal protein, th- those nations, those countries are going to be good markets for U.S. soybean. Well, hey, um, you know, I, I had you scheduled here for an hour. I don't want to, uh, you know, I try to be respectful of everybody's time. I appreciate you taking an hour to, to speak to me. I know that you, you know, I, I know the world of uh, of the groups like you that look out for the interests of various industries, right? So I just, I appreciate you taking the time to to sit and chat with me. Well, hey, Mac, if, if you're in the Carolinas, North or South, and anything we can do for you, give us a holler. Man, I'm stopping in then. I'm just going to go in there and be like, dude, you ready for lunch? <laughs> yeah, let me know. Let me know. I look forward to that. I like it. Um, well, cool. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, it's, it's sort of like it, it is a topic. It's totally out of my depth as far as like soy is just something I don't know. Um, so I appreciate you, you again being patient and comparing with me there. Dude, you, you hit all the right things. You sounded like you knew it. Hey, you know, I can pull, pull a rabbit out of the hat once in a while. <laughs> This concludes episode number 55 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing soybeans, the United States' largest agricultural export, with Charles Hall, Executive Director of the North Carolina Soybean Producers Association. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. 